Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, is universalism biblical or is it heretical? Should we even consider this theology as Christians? I'm well aware that this topic is controversial among Christians, and that's okay with me. Let's talk about it. The main reason I wanted to have this conversation is because when I quote some early church fathers, I'm hit with, well, that's a great quote, but he was a universalist, and it's used as a pejorative. Today, I have three guests on the show who understand this topic way better than me. All three have contributed in some fashion to this project, and I am excited to speak again with them today. Abby Kleckner, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Scott Goldman is back on the show with us. I think the last time you were on the show was our year-end roundtable, 2020. So how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. Life is really, really good. That's always good to hear. Ari Spivey, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing good. So anybody that's familiar with this project and has been listening to us for any amount of time can hear his voice because he is the voice behind the music for the Bad Roman Project. And it has been a real hit. We get uh, people reaching out to us, asking, who is this? Where'd that music come from? <laughs> I like to joke, say, I did it myself. What are you talking about? <laughs> but everybody knows I'm not that talented. But yeah, it's been a real, it's been real cool to see how people have latched onto that song. If you, if you listen to it in its entirety, and the way you put it together, and I mentioned this when I had you on the show when, we, when it first released, how quick you put it together was so fascinating to me because when I was talking to our producer, I was like, well, we'll get something together in a couple months. And <laughs> two or three days later, I was like, hey, I got your song ready. And I was just waking up, getting ready for work. He's like, hang on, let me hear it. And he goes, well, I got to get it produced first. <laughs> but it's good stuff. It's, he's from Feld Kingdoms. And if you go listen to any of his other music, you're going to understand just how talented Ari is. All right. So what I'm going to do first is get each of y'all's background on where you came from as a Christian to how you came to your understanding of this topic today, universalism. Abby, I'll start with you. So I grew up mainline Protestant. We kind of switched off being Lutheran and Methodist. We moved around a lot. So we went to a lot of different churches. And for me, that had like no meaning to my life whatsoever. It was just like rituals we went through on Sunday. Um, And I hated church and I swore up and down that when I was an adult, I would never, ever go to church again. And Never make my kids go to church. But um, then when I was in high school, uh, someone invited me to more evangelical church. And at first it was like really, really weird. I was like, we were like the only people dressed up and there were no hymnals and they were like playing guitars and stuff. We were like, oh, this is weird. But it it wasn't just rituals. It was more like how your relationship with God brings meaning to your life. And and it, what I really liked, it was very much about like learning and studying and growing more and always doing the Bible studies. And so I was really into that. And I, I always took things very seriously and literally and, let, and like uh, people saying the Bible is God's inerrant word to us. And 
And I would read the Bible over and over again and come across things in Joshua, like where God was commanding them to kill every man, woman, and child and babies. And I was like, really, God? God commanded them to kill babies? Like, this isn't sitting right with me. And I couldn't ever get a satisfactory answer to that. So just, I guess, more and more stuff like that, where I would I would bump up against things that, that didn't sit right with me and, and didn't align with who I knew God to be. And, and other parts of the Bible where I'm, I'm like, these, these things don't align. What, and we're just supposed to accept all of it the way it's being given to us and kind of, yeah, study and ask questions, but not those kind of questions, you know? And so that was really difficult for me and something I struggled with for a long time until I started finding more. I think it originally started from podcasts where I, I started being able to hear more outside sources versus just what the church that I went to was giving me and find out more about kind of how much rich history there is in Christianity and how the diversity of beliefs. And so I would say the first thing was like the violence of God in the Old Testament is the stuff that I started learning more about and rethinking. And then when I learned about Christian universalism or ultimate restoration and how that that's what a majority of the early Christians believed, I was like sold immediately. I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. Because I think if you take the idea of hell really seriously, like you can never have peace. You, you can never like have peace in your relationships. And, and I really did have just anxiety all the time and feel like so guilty. And like this huge responsibility was on my shoulders that everyone around me, I, I had to hurry up and convince them because who, who knows what could happen at any minute. They, they could die and they, and they hadn't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they were going to, that was their last chance and they would be gone in hell forever. And I had constant, constant anxiety about it. So when I heard, I know a lot of people will kind of struggle with it for a long time or, or go to annihilationists before they're ready to kind of embrace universalism. But I was like, immediately, like, <laughs> I did not take very much convincing. I was like, that makes sense with who I know God is. And that makes sense with how I love my neighbor. And just hearing things like Jesus left paradise to come down and serve the suffering and so how could he just let people suffer in hell? And if I think about like people I love, if they were in hell, what would I do to get them out? H- how much more would God do that for them? You know, so universalism was easy for me. I was like, that's the first thing that actually made sense that <laughs> that I've heard. So, uh, so I jumped on that right away. Yeah. That's interesting to me, your background as far as being around Methodists and Lutheran churches. I did not know that. For some reason, in my mind, I always just assumed Abby Kleckner was a non-denominationalist because she just didn't conform to anything. <laughs> so, but I guess that was a you were a, a child. Yeah, yeah. In in high school is when I started going to a, a Bible church. That makes sense. Scott, give me some uh, background of yourself and how you came to this topic. Okay. Um, well, the background is how I was raised was in Pentecostal churches, um, charismatic, like Assemblies of God, and and then. Pentecostal Church of God, and then as we got older, Foursquare. And I want to say, like, the hell thing was a big part of it because that was growing up, and I was also growing up with my grandparents for most of my youth. So, like, the hellfire and brimstone preaching was predominant. That's what it was about. You get saved from hell. So, that idea was just regular to me as a kid. But when I finally, like, really came to faith when I was about 21 year, years old, 
it really broke my heart that, you know, like when I'm, I had just recently been married. My wife didn't grow up in the church. Is she going to go to hell? And I basically just had to accept that as the reality at the time and um, continue to follow God and do all the things I was supposed to do, being married to an unbeliever. And so, so, you know, as you walk the path and I can remember when my wife got saved, you know, said the prayer and whatnot, and what a relief, what a relief for me that it was. Um, but then I would have conversations with my friends, you know, and then I, I remember one time driving with a carload of them and sharing about the love of Christ. And then it got on the subject of kind of like, well, that doesn't interest me at all. So what happens then? If, and I was like, well, then you kind of go to hell. And one of the kids in the car, a good friend of mine said, that sounds like a threat. And I decided never to kind of share the gospel with the threat again after that, because it was, there was something in the, in the air that wasn't right. And I didn't know how to understand it, put my finger on it or, or anything. But for years, that's just what I've believed. And of course, when you have kids, then you really start getting scared of that um, as they get older. And I'll say like my, my oldest daughter, she started walking the, the kind of rebellious path that I did as a youth. And um, of course, you're going to start getting some like, because when you have kids, man, you just want, you want them to avoid everything that you've experienced that was negative. Um, so you're just really hoping that, you know, they stick in church, they get in their Bible, they, they, they become that little, uh, little worship leader that you want them to be, you know, and they do all those things. But then when they're not interested in it, you know, it's kind of like, it's scary, but eventually you just get numb to these things and you keep, keep up with what you, what you, what you've been taught. And I don't even remember exactly how universalism came into my radar. I think it was first hearing about annihilationism. And then I was like, well, that makes more sense with the scriptures that I've been reading with. You know, it's, how do you say, you're destroyed forever. Not not meaning you're alive being destroyed forever. It's like you're destroyed forever. You're done. You're gone. But that didn't last long. Um, It was just kind of turned on to that idea. And I thought it was more scriptural, um, or at least a better interpretation of what I was reading. But then the verses started popping out. Um, which is like a second Timothy, no, first Timothy 4.10, I believe it is the, that God is the savior of all people. Oh, let me back up. This is why we labor and strive for God is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. And I'm like, wait a minute, that changes everything. Like, what does that mean? And why don't I ever hear this preached at church? And then from there, it's like, you know, finding some books like Keith Giles, um, I'm reading one on, or listening to one of my phone now that calls the necessity of Christian universalism. It's called grace saves all. And it's really lining up more with what putting the scriptures together as a whole and not taking out these little parts of seeing why everything leads to universal salvation. I can really relate to a lot of what you just said, because I spent a lot of my time terrified for friends and family. Of course. Why wouldn't we be? Yeah. I mean, but fear has never been a great motivator for me. If that makes sense, you can't scare me into something. It has to make perfect sense to me. But I was just that typical Southern Baptist person that what the preacher said behind the pulpit, then I go about my week, you know, worried if these people that did not go to the altar and ask God for forgiveness when they left that church, what if they died in a car wreck? This is the stuff that was being preached behind the pulpit to me. But there's nothing in the Bible that suggests any of that, that to, that I can find. Jesus never walked around trying to scare anybody into loving their neighbor or their enemy or him. Grace, to me, has been such a, a bigger motivator for me. People ask you, well, does that mean with your free will you can just live how you want? No. <laughs> no. 
Grace motivates me to live better, motivates me to want to live better. Fear is not going to motivate me. And that maybe it does motivate some people. I don't know. But it's not something that, that I can recognize in the Bible from Jesus. I put more stock in the Gospels than I do the epistles. And that's going to rub some people the wrong way as well. You know, the whole Bible as a whole is the word of God, right? No, Jesus is the word of God. Okay. And so if Jesus is the word of God, what is said in the, in the Gospels, these folks that were walking around with him daily had a better understanding, you know, so, and we're going to, that could go on to a whole different rabbit, rabbit hole, but let's get to Irie Spivey. Irie, tell me where you came from and how you came to this understanding of universalism. Well, I was born and raised in uh, charismatic churches, uh, predominantly black charismatic churches, preaching hellfire. One of, one of the things that initially got me on where I am now is when I was about 14, 15. And well, just just as a backstory, like when you're young and you don't really have a lot to worry about material wise, you tend to like, you know, just uh, look towards stuff that just doesn't make any sense. And one of those things for me was video games. So long story short, this was a Nintendo 64. And if you know anything about Nintendo 64, it's a myth. It's a myth. It doesn't work. But you take out the cartridge and you blow on it, right? After you blow on it, you put it back in and it's supposed to work. But the thing is, I did that like 40 times for almost <laughs> an hour and my video game would not work. Now, I know this sounds absurd, but where I was, my emotions was so invested in this video game. And this is bad. You know, I don't want this to be a, I don't want to I don't want this to be an ad for like video games are evil. But um the video game I was playing it so much and I was motivated by it so much, I got so mad that I would start praying to God. I was like, <laughs> Lord, help it. Like, Lord, let this video game play. And it will work. So eventually, I just got so upset to the point where I just said, I hate you <laughs> to God. And so, obviously, I didn't mean it. This is it's stupid. And I like the next day, I just didn't, it didn't even, it didn't even register to me that I said it. It was just, you know, out of, out of anger. And so, like a couple years later, I'm in I'm in church and this pastor, he basically just tells me that he brings up, mentions this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which and I mean, obviously, this is not true. But he basically said that one of the ways that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit is if you say you hate God. And so after that, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this unforgivable sin. So now I'm this like 14 year old boy sitting in the pew thinking that I can never be forgiven. Like this is just a stupid thing that I did like a couple of years ago. But at that point in time, I was a I was a person like with all this pent up fear, emotion and even rage just thinking that it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I do. Like just simply based off of that particular thing that I did in the past, I was going to burn in hell. And I would literally it got to a point where I became depressed. I'm 14. I became depressed. I'm crying every single night, crying myself to sleep. And I'm praying to God, like, Lord, please forgive me for what I did. But that pastor is just in my, in my head. He's like, no, you can't be forgiven because what you did in the past. And I was like, I don't know why I'm still praying to you because it doesn't even work. Long story short, all of that happened. And that was one of the traumatic experiences that I had to, that I had to go through, you know, being a Christian in church. And eventually my aunt, she passed away when I was about six, seven if I recall. And it always bothered me that I didn't know where she ended up. 
it was always a, okay, my aunt, as far as I was concerned, as far as I knew, she wasn't really into church. You know, she wasn't really a churchy person. Um, specifically, like she was, a, she was about like in her early twenties. So you know, when you're like in your early twenties, a lot of a lot of people we just kind of go wild and we, you know, we just stay away, like kind of push away from church and things like that. And that's kind of where she was, at least that I remember. And so I had always had this, like this th- thought in my mind. I was like, where is my aunt? Like, where does she end up? Is she burning in hell for eternity? Is she in heaven? I'm not sure. But eventually in college, I became an agnostic. And then, thank God, I came back to faith. But through that, it just made me, and through all of the traumatic experiences and all these things, it just made me want to, de I don't want to say deconstruct, because I didn't even know what that meant at that point. But it just made me just rethink the entire foundations of my faith. And one of those blocks, I guess, one of those foundational blocks was the idea of eternal conscious torment, or at least some people were going to go to hell. Inevitably, I I just, I eventually started reading books like Edward Fudge's um, book, A Consuming Fire. He's He's an annihilationist. And I eventually became an annihilationist. You see, you know, I was, I was good with that for a while. But then one day I read a particular scripture, particular scriptural passage, and it said that in Adam all die, And just as in Christ, all will be made alive. And I never saw that until that point in time. After that, it seems like Paul, I I know you put, I know, Craig, you put stock in in the Gospels more than the epistles. But the initial thing that made me, that turned me on to universalism was Paul. For me, I just started reading more and more into this idea. I didn't even know what it was called. I was like, I did not know what universalism was when I when I began to read about it, I just had this concept in my mind and I was like, will all people be saved? I didn't know it was called universalism, but it inevitably led me into reading into the early church and, you know, like origin, obviously, Gregory of Nyssa, Theodore, Amoptuestia, Isaac of Nineveh, and just eventually just said, okay, this is where I want to land on. This is, this seems like the most moral and most logically consistent position that you can take and be a Christian Considering considering all of the different kinds of theological predicates that we impose onto our Christian faith, universalism seems to be the most consistent morally and logically for me. I always appreciate when people will look past the Bible and read some stuff from folks who, especially the first four or five hundred years from these, these guys and gals, because yes, we have the Bible, but it's so interesting to me what these people were saying after the Bible. Even then, they didn't have the New Testament. So, but in, in the Bible, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, right? But so, you know, you have to think, and like Polycarp is one of my favorite examples because he was taught directly by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was taught directly by Jesus Christ. So to me, it makes more sense to read more into it, look for more answers because, and I think I told you all this before we started recording, my mom can attest to this. I've questioned everything from the time I was born. And when I started understanding liberty and it led me to anarchy, then I started thinking, wait, have I been wrong about other things? Have I been wrong about things that I've, I've been so stubborn about in the Bible? Let's check it out. I've got a question. I got to figure it out. And I don't think that makes me a bad person. I don't think that means I'm a, a denier of Christ or the writings of the Bible at all. But I got to question it. I mean, you said something about it's the most logical consistency to understand this. and. Consistency to me is so important. If it's not consistent, 
I'm done with it. And people can use the Bible, Christians especially use the Bible to fight with each other about, why do we have over 40,000 denominations? Why? Does that make any sense to anybody? It doesn't make any sense to me because it's man. It's man that did this. We've screwed it up this whole time. And we have to be able to come to grips with that, in my opinion. We have to be able to come to grips with it. Maybe what we understood was wrong. And we should go back and read these early church writings because they were there. They saw it. Go ahead, Abby. I was just going to say, I think it's not necessarily that we screwed it up and it's not necessarily a bad thing that we have that many denominations. I think we all just need to kind of hold on to what we believe right now a little bit more loosely, because what I believe right now is not the same as I believed five years ago. And I think almost everyone would say that. And I think if God is infinite, then like, yeah, it does take a lot of denominations and different perspectives to understand it. And I think, you know, we're all on a journey trying to understand this the best that we can. And, I, and I'm never going to be 100% right. So I have to be open to other people's perspectives and interpretations. As far as universalism, that makes the most sense to me. But I think all of us, because of the background we came from, can understand why people would have a hard time with that. And because of that, have come to this place where we can say, like, I know for sure I'm not 100% right. And I know for sure I'm going to keep learning for all eternity, because at some point I'll die and then God will take me through another journey. You know, like it's never ending and as we're constantly being perfected. Yeah. How boring would it be if we just stopped learning? Right. You know, if we just stopped, we just stop right now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to touch on you being a questioner. I think that's, I mean, that's what Jesus does. You know, every time somebody approached him, you know, he asked them a question so you can get down to the bottom of, of what's really there. And that's what's needed. That was so, it's, it's something I've made a point of telling folks is that when, when they were questioning Jesus in the Bible, what did he do? He asked them a question and he would get their brain moving. He would, they, their, their brain would start moving and they, they didn't have an answer. So they, most times they just turn around and walk away because they didn't have an answer for him. Go ahead, finish, Scott. Actually, I'm just going to play off what you said because I, I think that's a, a beautiful aspect of it. Christ would say, be challenged by a Pharisee, then he would ask them a question and they would get stumped because they would come in to fight not to understand. Um, and that's what I see. This is probably picking a fight, but where I see the Western church is a lot like Western empire. There's certain things you are not allowed to question. And if you question these things, then you're the person that's on the out. But there's this quote, I don't even know who this lady is, but it struck me years ago. And I've always saved this picture. Jesus was not killed by atheism and anarchy. He was brought down by law and order aligned with religion, which is always a deadly mix. Beware of those who claim to know the mind of God and who are prepared to use force, if necessary, to make others conform. Beware of those who cannot tell God's will from their own. And what I see what happened when the church came into power under Constantine is we just took up the mantle of Caesar, so to speak, in the West, and it it became a dictatorship. This is the part that's picking a fight, and I'm not meaning it to pick a fight. It's just something I observe, is the Western church is way more like imperialism than it is of the character and nature of Christ, who is the example, the living example of who God is. We've settled for Caesar. And you you can't really have that conversation without making some people mad. But I think it's what we need to, we need to talk about the similarities. We need to talk about these psychological similarities. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it was something I wanted to bring up in this conversation too. Is, is, do you see, 
this type of thinking, not universalism, but the people that buck this idea, do you see it because there's something that's still stuck in the back of their head about because of statism? Now, and I don't, th that's probably picking a fight. It's the addiction to power. That's exactly what I'm going to say it is. And I'm going to go right to Augustine on this one. And well, I'm going to talk Joe Biden. <laughs> then I'm going to say um, Augustine. But I don't know. I really haven't paid much attention to Biden. But, you know, th just this narrative behind getting the COVID vaccine. You get this or else, you know, you should, you won't be shopping. You won't be doing this. There's this heavy threat. And then when it's questioned, it's just, you're the conspiracy theorist. You need to trust the experts. You're not smart enough. It's this constantly belittling and put it down. Now go back to Augustine. I remember there's, I can't remember where this is written, but he was questioned. What was God doing before creation when he created the earth in seven days? And his only retort was creating hell for people like you who ask dumb questions because he was not ready for a question that was actually a pretty smart question and had to belittle and in a sense coerce the person into get in line with me because I know what's going on. That's the same model that's been through Western Christianity since it's aligned itself with Rome, that you go all the way even down to the non-denominational churches that I go to that are more fundamentalist. The pastor will say stuff like, well, that's just how it always is. And this is what the Bible says. And it's, okay, but the Bible says it's over here. And then the conversation stops. They're, cha they're, they're challenged in their position, and they hold to that hierarchy dominance that is more mankind than it is anything given by God. Hey folks, Craig here, and I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. I'm going to ask this question for all three of y'all, and we'll go one at a time, obviously, so we're not talking over each other. But universalism, this is where it's, the idea is so interesting to me. Because if Jesus said he's going to save everyone, all people, does that not mean all people? And do we really understand God's grace if we're going to question his ability to save all people? Does that make sense? Is that a stupid question? Because it's something that I've had rattling around in my head, because if if we're going to say the grace of God is unbounding, it's it's we don't we there's no way we can understand it. If we're going to say that, shouldn't we also be able to accept the fact that he has the ability to give that grace to everyone? Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners. The first thing people want to run to is what about Hitler? Hitler was horrible. I'm not denying that. but. Do you don't think Jesus still loved Hitler? All right, go ahead. Well, even, you know, a question like that, what about Hitler? I mean, when people say stuff like that, it also affirms this idea that some people are more deserving of heaven than other people. But the whole point is, is that most of the time their theology affirms the idea that everyone is equally deserving of hell. So it's not just Hitler is deserving of hell. It's even like granny over here who's 70 years old, who lived a perfectly peaceful, char charitable life, who's lied one time, right? And so 
it, it, it gets to a point where it's like, what exactly, what exactly is it that you're saying that Christ won't or cannot do when you bring up Hitler? Is Hitler unsavable? No. I mean, if, if you if you understand, if you understand who Jesus is, at some point, if you believe in universal and universal uh, atonement, you are inherently saying that everybody is savable. It just just means that Jesus, um, that some people won't come to Christ, that some people won't come to Christ. So in that sense, Jesus just can't save anybody. But the point is, is that, yes, I agree with you, Craig. If God's grace extends to all people, then I think that there's nothing that could possibly stand in the way of God bringing about his own intentions to uh, of, of reality. And if he intends to save all people, and I think he does, and I think he is, then I think he also has the power to do it. How, how can you intend something when you don't even have the power to actualize it? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, what kind of really came to mind there uh, from what you said and what, what Ari was talking about is I'm just going to use some fundamental um, talking points because um, those are the things that I grew up in. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is a scripture that's used to say that everybody is in sin. Okay. So if I'm intellectually honest, I have to take the scripture that Ari mentioned is because of Adam, all die. So all are made alive in Christ. Why am I not putting that same passion behind that scripture that talks about everyone being saved, but I'm passionate about that everyone's sent. So that already reveals a mindset, in my opinion, of like where your head's at. You believe so much in the, the power of sin, but you have a lack of faith that God can deliver us all from it. That tells me that you have a bigger faith in sin than you do in God. At least that, that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, I think what it, what it comes down to is people believe all sins can be forgiven except for a misunderstanding. If, if you have a misunderstanding about who Jesus is or like your mind isn't perfectly aligned, that's the one thing you can't be forgiven for, whether you were a murderer or a rapist, as long as you at some point say, I'm sorry, forgive me. I believe in Jesus. It's all wiped clean. But if you are raised Muslim or Hindu or something, or just don't have that same understanding, then then that's why you would be beyond reach. It, it's just not logical to me. And I think, again, like you said, the power of grace and the idea, if you think about like how we generally think about the afterlife and like, oh, well, all the Christians will be in heaven. And you think of God's ultimate purpose for restoring all of creation to his original intent, except that he's going to leave this pocket of hell and, and that sin is eternal. These ideas don't, don't line up, that, that you believe that God is going to allow sin to exist eternally and he would heal all of creation, all of the death and pollution and destruction and war, all of, all of that can be restored. But these people who had a misunderstanding about who God was in the finite time they had before they died, they're beyond reach. And God is just going to keep them in this kind of like holding place forever where we don't really think about them. And if you think about how much God loves us and how we're God's children made in his image, why would he restore the entire universe except not allow people who didn't have the correct understanding while they were on earth? to come into a right relationship with him? Why would he put up that barrier? Just to piggyback off of, of uh, Abby, when you really think about it, okay, if God is infinitely merciful, 
the idea that he couldn't and like eventually bring everybody to a saving faith in Christ is like holding to the idea that you could flip a coin for eternity and it never lands on it never lands on heads not even once that seems so improbable to the point i mean and if, and if you if you accept that if you accept that this idea that that at least at at some point in time that you could flip a coin for eternity and it lands on head at least once you're a universalist that's all you have to do and it seems so impossible and almost it, it doesn't even make any sense to think that if you give somebody an infinite chance, like infinite possibilities of repentance, and then not only that, but you also give that person a sufficient knowledge of who God is, and then you not, and then you all, and then you also maintain the idea that with both of those things um, accounted for, they'll never turn to Christ. It just seems like an impossible standard to act that'll actually come about. Like that's the reason why, to, for me. Universalism just seems like the most logically consistent position because like a, a human soul rejecting God for eternity, that doesn't that doesn't even seem like it makes logical sense to me. Why would you do that? Especially if you can, especially if God gives you an, an like a uh, sufficient amount of information. Why would you why would you say, OK, I know this. I know God is, you know, the infinite wellspring of goodness and he is the thing that fulfill that fulfills human desire. Nah, I'ma just, I'ma just, you know, just kick that to the curb and just be miserable for the rest of my life. It doesn't make any sense. Like no rational sane person would ever choose a fate like that. Yeah. I I love how Ari has posted that on Facebook a bunch of times in different ways. And and I think that that's such a great point. And I think this is one of the stumbling blocks people come across. So so there's two things. I think the first thing is this idea of death being finite, which that was the first thing that kind of changed my mind is like, well, who says God can't still work on your heart after you've left this earth? And it was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess nothing. And because people, you'll hear all the time that Christ conquered death. It, that's like one of the things that we just accept as being true. And you'll, you'll hear it in church all the time, but it's like, oh, I never really, I never really believed that. I still believed that death was final and there's no coming back from there, that that's your last chance. And once you've crossed that threshold, you're beyond God's reach. But if you really believe that Christ conquered death, then that's not true. And then I think the second stumbling block is the idea of free will, which is not a problem for Calvinists, but for other Christians who believe in hell, which this is something that I was very much like, yeah, you know, love doesn't force you to do anything. So so God won't interfere with our free will. And so that's kind of like why there is a hell, because we have to have the freedom to choose one or the other. Otherwise, we don't have free will. But I think what Ari has posted a bunch of times is saying that it's not God altering your free will. It's God taking away kind of the blinders that you have and the misunderstandings and the the bondage that you have in sin that doesn't allow you to see clearly. And so if death isn't final and if God can keep working on you to remove those things that are blocking your vision from seeing him clearly, then I think what you're left with is ultimately everyone using their free will will choose God in the end, even if it takes thousands of years or however long. 
but you know, we'll, we'll be existing outside of time at some point. So that doesn't even enter into it. You're kind of leading into what I wanted to ask y'all, but I've leaned on Abby quite a bit since my brother passed away to kind of get an understanding of this because TJ was not a Christian. Okay. So when he passed away, I was, I was terrified that he's burning in hell or I was going to be terrified. But, and I, and this is where my question, Scott, go ahead and say what you have to say. And then I'm going to ask y'all all three this question real quick. Um, Abby really kind of pointed it out is we view death as finite or like it, like it absolutely is the end of things. But the reality is death is a part of life. That's why like that scripture death is, where is your victory? Where is your sting? This doesn't last forever. So like, how you lost your brother, you know, I've, I've shared with you personally, and I'll kind of say it on here. I have a child that tried to commit uh, suicide twice in a year's time. And my greatest fear is losing a child. And so of course these feelings go up within you and you don't want anything bad with your children. That's just natural, but facing that fear and that reality and facing like I, I recently also lost a brother, um, brother-in-law who drank himself to death. And you have all these people that have, you know, you have seen Christ in them. You know, you've seen, you've seen their goodness. Um, the knowledge of knowing that death is not forever. That's what gives me that joy that says, okay, where's your victory? I might not have you now, but I had you here for a certain period of time. And that was a huge grace and a gift that I received. So I'm not going to feel the pain of this forever. I'm going to re be reunited with the people that I love, regardless of if they had it all figured out here or not. All right. So here's my question. And I want some for the skeptics listening to this episode because there's going to be several and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be <laughs> fielding questions for days after we release this episode. But give me some uh, scriptural basis out of the Bible to back up this idea of universalism and what happens to a person. Abby said something to me one time about this when I was asking her questions and and I think y'all just touched on it. It, it it's a process. We don't understand how it happens, but eternal damnation doesn't make any sense if you listen to the words of Jesus. Now, what's happening beyond death? That's been one of my biggest questions about TJ. Where is he? If he wasn't a Christian, as we as we believe in the traditional sense, where's he at? I'm not one that subscribes to purgatory. I don't know what I don't I just don't get into that stuff, but where is he? What's he doing? Is he being cleansed? Is he? And when we talk about this, and I think Ari even puts this in some of his music too about. Oh God, I'm going to say this wrong. I'm going to say this this phrase wrong, but it's out of your song. What's the other song? Not the bad Roman track, but the other one that I love so much. But it's something you said you'll be refined by fire. That's burning up. Yeah, a burning up. Okay, maybe it's burning up. So refined. Am I saying that correctly? Refined by fire. Oh wait, yeah. I think it's. I think it's on my. I think it's on my second verse where I say. Um, well, no, no, it's at the beginning. And I say, all oh, will be salted with fire for salt is good. There you go. That's it. That's it. So with that, is there is that backed by scripture? Is that something that you're saying because of you understand universalism or is it something you've read in the Bible that backs that up? That's literally Jesus. Um, I mean, I, I forget which, it's in the Gospels. I forget which um, which actual passage it is because it's been a while since I read it, but um, Jesus literally says that. So he's re he's referring to the Gehenna and he says, um, all will be salted with fire for salt is good. And he's referring to the Gehenna. I can't recall exactly which scripture that is, though. Is that what y'all think is going on right now with people that have passed away that didn't weren't Christians? And I think even as Christians, and this is why where I fall out on it now is like even as Christians, 
there's still th- some things to work through after we pass away. If that makes sense. Does that make sense to y'all? Because man, I've been a, a Christian for as long as I can remember, but man, I screw up a lot, <laughs> even as a Christian. So I'm still wondering what happens if I died right now, even though I've known screwed up yesterday or earlier today or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So what happens? Are we still being perfected through a process? And is it scriptural? Because I, there's going to be so many skeptics to this, this episode. I'm really curious to y'all's take on this. Scott, go ahead. Yeah, this is the part where I think we have to leave like the process of after we after we die a, a mystery because we really I mean we do have like near death experiences of people that come back and say some things and you know I think maybe we should consider that kind of stuff. But in the in the Bible it really doesn't give a process of what happens. Like the refining fire that uh, Ari was talking about I think is evident in, in scripture. So like whether it's a literal process or just how Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which that's another confusing verse for me because God is, what is that word? Omnipresent. So I'm present with God now, but I'm present with God when I die too. You know, so there's, there's mystery to that, but I think it's our, our, our desire for certainty that wants to really know and not leave things a mystery. So to me, I don't see any good evidence for like, once you die that you're just, you know, instantly purified, or if there is a continuation process, I don't think there's anything that really can give us some concrete evidence to stand on in that. But what I do find of what we have in science, or sorry, scripture and science is even all matter is eternal. So everything like the now in the sense is it's always there it's just been reshaped continually and over and over and over over again and if that pattern is what we can see through a scientific look at reality that we can gather which we i think from what i've understood we only understand four percent of the matter of the universe and i wonder how we come to that number but if that's a pattern we can detect in reality it makes sense that there'd be some kind of process over here on this that that's continuing you know what i'm saying like if everything's eternal everything just keeps going energy never dies we know this from you know, science and we know uh, matter just kind of changes from one form to another on this planet. Yeah. So I, I, I'm comfortable now not knowing, but what I'm convinced of is that everything is according to God's plan, but not, not in a Calvinist understanding, <laughs> which is another can of worms to open, which I won't even try today. But I got to tell y'all, I had, when I first got into these uh, Christian anarchist circles, I had never even heard of Calvinism before. Didn't even know what it was. And then I see these people fighting about it. I was like, what are y'all so mad about? Who's Calvin? <laughs> Who's Luther? What are y'all fighting about? I thought we were here about Jesus. And, and, and so, and that's just a, that we could probably talk on <laughs> an hour about that. But it just, it was so confusing to me when I came into, that's why I stopped getting into, or I just avoid theological debates anymore. And this is why I was a little apprehensive to do this episode because I don't want it to turn into something that's over my head. And it's going to go over my head. I'm sure a lot of what y'all have to say is going to go over my head because I'm still trying to grasp this. I'm there with you, but I have questions. But what I do know is that Jesus loves us regardless. And don't tell a Christian that because it's going to upset them. <laughs> and isn't that sad? That's a quote. That's a quote. Right? Yeah. <laughs> In that thinking, if Jesus loves us regardless, there's nothing about that that tells me that Jesus is going to send us into eternal fire forever and burn for eternity. That doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know how a Christian at this point can believe that. 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, what about his life, his teachings tells you that if you make a bad step, if you make a misstep, you're going to you're gonna burn in hell. Like literal, literally burn for eternity. This is what some people think. I used to. I used to believe that, and it's terrifying. And I'm not worried about it anymore. And it doesn't mean I'm going to run out and start doing stupid things because I got a free will to because... Like I told you earlier, grace is more of a motivator for me than, than fear. And if Christians, to me, if they understood that better, then they wouldn't be so. All right. Jesus did not run around telling people. He did not run around trying to scare people into loving him. Ever. There's no evidence of that. Yes. And I'd love to touch on that. This verse I recently shared with somebody, and it was just like, I can't see why it just totally went over their head in the conversation. But it's um, Hebrews 1, verse 3. Um, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. I'm just going to stop where it commas, but it goes on. It's a, this is a diatribe. Well, it's it's interesting to me too when you when you when you read the scripture from Jesus when he says, "When you see me, you've seen the Father." Yes. And then people want to go back to the Old Testament and say, like I think it was Abby was talking earlier about in Joshua when he commanded them to kill all women and children. So, so I'm curious. I'm curious about that because well. If Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father, what was going on there? And this is why it's so, it's confusing to people, I think. Go ahead, Scott. I see exactly where you're getting at. And to me, it's where this is kind of a left hook, um, is because most of our Christianity today are biblicists, not Christians. They want to, they put the Bible literally over Christ. And they get mad when I say that's idolatry, but that is idolatry, because this is exactly what it's saying, is I don't need to read the Bible. I need to read who Christ is. Granted, I get some information about Christ out of that Bible. but the invitation is to know him, not words. Words are basically the best thing that we have to express ideas and thoughts. If we can capture God in that, then God's too small. So that's why he gave us his son to walk this earth. And think about it. This guy held no political office. He wasn't, he wasn't known as a re renowned carpenter that people are still mimicking today, which I think we would have been more of a stonemason. So what he did with his life, we are still talking about over 2,000 years, and he was literally a nobody. To call Jesus the Son of God was an insult to Caesar because that was his, was his title. His title was Savior of the World, and we gave this to a Jewish rabbi who wasn't a popular among his own people. I mean, sure, we, say, we see that he was growing in popularity, but he was persecuted by his religious establishment. He was the heretic of his time. And that's something that we have to view. Was it Jesus that was unpopular or was it his message? Well, in a sense, it was very unpopular to the Jewish people. And it, you can really see it in the Gospel of Luke when he's in the synagogue and they try to throw him off the cliff. It's he's saying basically right there is like, it's not your nationalism that that is going to bring the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for all people, which I can understand this of being, um, how do you say, being mad at it. You you look at yourself like when, you're, when you are um, oppressed, you really want your oppressor to be annihilated. And you see that in the Psalms quite a bit, you know, Babylon, um, when they're talking to Babylon, blessed are those who dash your children upon the rocks. You want to see that place annihilated. But then you have Christ who comes on the scene who says, God loves the Romans just as much as he loves the Jewish people. Those are fighting words. That's really changing some things up in your, in your community. It's kind of like, uh, okay. Um, if I'm saying like God loves the Taliban and he does not want us as Americans to be at war with these people you know, I'm going to ruffle some feathers. It's kind of the same thing that's happening in his time. And they're so mad that their national identity, which was idolatry as well, was not put up high on the in Christ's view. 
So yeah, they just want to throw them off a cliff and not have to deal with that they are following God wrong. Yeah, I just think ultimately so much comes down to tribalism. And when Jesus came and said that his message wasn't just for Israel, it was for the entire world, the impact of that doesn't hit us as hard today as it would have back then, Of that they had this identity, that they were the chosen people, and the Messiah was not going to be for anyone else in the world. It was going to be for them. So the idea that Jesus was was flipping that upside down and saying, no, there there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. We're all one. We're all going to be saved. We're all going to be reconciled to God. It's not certain people and other people are left in the dark. It's, it's everybody. The message is for the entire world. And I think Christianity now, especially in countries in the West, like America, we have so much power and and Christianity it ha- it has so much power and has such a stronghold that it's we're we're not we're not the minority we're not the oppressed anymore and and we want to have this tribalistic identity where we can put others in the outgroup and we can think that you know the the people who've done wrong to me they're going to get theirs they're not going to be with me in heaven they're going to be punished there's that very strong desire to have you're in group and know that other people are going to be separated from you and other people are going to be punished. I know there's some things that Jesus said, like the verse when he was talking about the sheep and the goats, or like when he says, you'll say, we prophesied in your name and said, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. He's talking about the Christians. He's talking about our in group that, you know, you're going to get there and he's going to be like, no, you know, you have your issues too, you know? <laughs> And it, it's not it's not the people who weren't the believers. It's the people who are the believers. And I think we, we want to believe that, okay, you know, this life is rough and I've had to go through some stuff, but once, once I die, poof, I'm in heaven and I have no worries anymore. And you don't want to think about the idea that we will all be salted with fire. And I still do have purification to go through to, to be fully reconciled and united with God. Yes, that is a scary idea that, you know, I, I still do have my, my own fire that I need to go through. But at the same time, I fully know now that God is loving and that I'm his child and that nothing he does is outside of what is beneficial for me. There's nothing that's just punishment for the sake of punishment or for the sake of vengeance. It's all for my restoration and my healing. So I feel like like Scott was saying, what happens after we die is a mystery. I, I feel like it's a mystery that I'm comfortable with because I know who God is and I don't have to be scared of it. Even if it's hard, I don't have to be scared of it. Right. And I think that's such an important point too. Like you said, once you understand, once you finally understand that God, who God is and what he's, and that he is, is, is he is loving regardless, <laughs> regardless. He loves us regardless. And he is love, period. Yeah. <laughs> Period. That's the end. Of, that should be the end of it. Ari, go ahead. You know, and I think because Scott said something about biblicism, I think that's going to be because I, I'm pretty sure that at at this moment, people who are skeptics they're going to be listening to this and they're going to say, "Where's the scripture? Like we barely, we really haven't quoted scripture that much." And I think that's going to be a really big issue because I know for a fact that the way that it tends to go when it comes down to discussing this kind of stuff with people who are not universalists. Just quoting proof text after proof text is not going to work anymore because 
what happens if like I mean and, and if you think about it, New Testament and, and New Testament scholarship, specifically Pauline scholarship, many New Testament scholars don't even believe that Paul had a consistent um had a consistent eschatology or had a consistent um soteriology. Because um many New Testament scholars will look at Romans one through five Romans Romans one through four and Romans five through eight, and they will say these are contradictory soteriology. And so what happens when you get to a point where you're like, okay, Paul was inconsistent in, in many ways. Paul was inconsistent. I really do believe that Paul believed that there would be some who would be eternally annihilated. But I also believe, and this is and this is a big kicker for a lot of people, that Paul obviously believed that ultimately everybody would be saved. I don't know how to reconcile that. I mean, I've tried to in video and you know in videos on my YouTube page, but if I'm just trying to be honest with you. It seems to me, at least, that and I, and obviously I know that universalists they will say, well, just this particular verse in one Thessalonians, right? It doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily speaking about annihilation. And I would just I'm the reason the reason that I say that it does is because I think it could easily go either way, and so I just don't want to even get into that debate because now when you quote something like one Timothy four ten. They'll quote something that Jesus said that, you know, in like Matthew 25, 46, where he says that, you know, some will go into eternal punishment and others into eternal life. And it's like, okay, fine. Let me just take you for what you just said. The scripture is inconsistent. They believe different things. Every, and it's like, and this is the whole point. It comes down to what do you think is the nature of scripture? If you're going to come into the scripture and say that everything has to be thoroughly consistent with everything else, you're going to fail, like they believe different things. I mean, just think about it. Paul said that you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. The guy who wrote Revelation said you can't. I mean, he clearly was a person who believed that you, in order for you to be saved, you have to have Jesus in the law. But Paul clearly believed that you didn't have to have the law. You had to have Jesus. And so in my opinion, and this is like, this is what's, what it's basically going to come down to is I think that the Bible gives you inconsistent eschatologies. I think at points, some of the authors believe, and I don't even think that this is actually what Jesus said. I mean, I just think that it's probably what they interpreted it as. But at some points, people believe that people were going to be eternally annihilated. And then Paul, he believed that everybody was going to be ultimately saved. But then at the same time, Paul kind of vacillated between the idea of some people being annihilated and some um, everybody being eternally saved. And so in my, in my opinion, this is the reason why I don't really debate it anymore because it's like I'm not an I'm not an inerrantist. Like I don't believe that they didn't make any that they didn't make any errors. It's like eventually eventually it comes down to what is the most morally morally and logically consistent position that you could take and it makes sense in terms of the theological predicates that we impose onto the Christian faith that God is love, that God is infinite mercy, that God is infinitely just. What does justice mean? Like you, ch- you just can't import this idea that God, that true justice is like retribution. Like you have to argue, you have to argue for that particular position. And so for me, this is, this is the reason why it's such a complicated issue is that one, people that are going to debate me about it, they're going to, they're going to see something that I say, like one Corinthians 15, 22, where Jesus says, well, where Paul says that in Adam and Adam all die and in Christ all will be made alive. And they'll import an assumption that that can't mean what it says because Paul or somebody else in scripture says this, and it clearly contradicts with something with, with the universalist framework. 
And so for me, I'm just not going to even, I'm just going to just affirm it. Like, yo, if you believe, if that's what it says, then that's what it says. But I'm not going to be a person who's trying, who's going to try to reconcile both of those texts. I'm not going to do that. I refuse to do it. Scripture has different eschatologies and different viewpoints about soteriology. I'm not going to sit there and brainstakingly try to reconcile all of it. I don't think it was meant to. I really don't think it was meant to. Like, these are different people. These are different people with different point of views. Some people actually wrote the scripture and they believe that you had to hold to the law. And Paul obviously didn't. And so, in my opinion, I don't stop at scripture. Like, that's the main thing that people are going to say. What does the scripture say? Well, you can't really stop at scripture because at the end of the day, if you know for a fact that something is probably, there's probably something that's morally inconsistent or logically inconsistent, even if scripture says it, you probably should reject it or you probably should come up with a different position because scripture clearly says, like Abby says, that God ordered a Canaanite genocide. And it says it. Am I gonna am I, am I gonna say that's a moral thing for God to do? No, I'm not gonna say that's a moral thing for God to do. And so either I have to just live with the fact that it says that, and I do, but I'm not gonna say that that's Jesus. Like Jesus didn't do that. Yahweh did not did not do that. In my position, my position is this: Scripture holds, at least at some point, specifically in Paul, and maybe sometimes, and maybe sometimes in um in the Gospels, that everybody will be saved. That Jesus came to save the world, and I think he really did. But then at other points, it also is consistent with Second Temple Judaism that they believed that the Gehenna was going to be eternal for some people. And I think that what you're seeing with Paul, specifically in Romans 9 through 11 and, and further on, is that you're seeing Paul almost wrestle with the idea that God is going to save all people. I was like, so what is inconsistent with Second Temple Judaism? Like they literally believe that the Messiah died and resurrected from the dead. Second Temple Jews didn't believe that. Like these are all new beliefs. Like they believe that their that their God literally died a an extremely horrible death. Second Temple Jews. That's the reason why Jews don't don't accept Jesus as a Messiah. Like they don't expect the Messiah to die like that. They don't accept the Messiah to do what Jesus did. So you have these Christians importing these new ways of thinking. Why is it so hard for people to understand that? Hey. Paul is consistent with Second Temple Judaism that he believed at some point that that some people were going to be annihilated, which that's clearly in Second Temple Jewish literature. But then this is this absolutely beautiful revelation now that he's saying everybody is going to be saved. And Paul is just trying his best to figure it all out because he's a Jew, but he's also a Christian. So he's doing the best that he can do to figure it out. So I'm just not going to sit. I'm not going to sit here and try to debate proof text with anybody. I'm just like, no, is it morally and logically consistent? And if it isn't, then you should reject it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I really agree with Ari on that one. And I'm starting to get to the point where I'm just tired of arguing with people over it. Because what, what I've come to realize is we do not read Paul correctly. Um, Paul was a Pharisee. Then he had a conversion experience and followed Christ. So I'm going to say a lot. So hopefully the dots connect. Um, but you can find in Revel or in Romans, where I, this gets quoted to me from Calvinists all the time. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But I won't get into the context of where all that comes from. But then earlier in Romans, I think it's chapter one, but I could be wrong. Um, it says God shows no partiality. So which is it? Does God choose between two brothers, or does He show no partiality? You have a direct contradiction right there in the same book. So to understand Paul, what you have to understand what he's doing is he's arguing one side of a case. 
and then arguing the other side of a case. So he's of split mind trying to make peace. I'm going to tag that into the Adam and Eve story. They were not supposed to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was something God did not want for them. But what did they do? They ate ate from the tree, and now they knew the difference between right and wrong. So that was, in my opinion, what that symbolizes, because I do not believe it is a literal story. I believe it is an allegorical story to tell us how our psyches work as human beings. It does not really do us good in the world to always be in that mindset of looking at everything as right or wrong. The best thing to do is always to see what the what fruit comes from the tree or the action or the whatever. And that's where Christ comes in when he delivers the gospel and says, repent and believe in the gospel. That word repent, we always get mistranslated into change your ways and do turn up 180 degree from your sin. But that word means rethink, change how you think and go beyond your thinking. That is a huge word that we need to focus on. So that's what's happening with Paul is he did think in this black and white tree of knowledge, good and evil, Pharisee, Calvinist, however you want to say it, American lawyer, that's that pattern of worldly thinking. But what Christ calls us to is to think differently outside of that paradigm, because that's the condition of man, so to speak. And when we can get outside of that, that, that's why we don't understand Paul, because he's putting the two together and drawing out like God, like uh, you you brought up... um, Romans 9 through 11, and it's Romans eleven thirty two that says, God placed everyone under sin so he can be merciful to all. So there's a purpose to why we're sinning. He's bringing some kind of mercy. And it, it, like, like I would say, like this, this right here could be very much hell, and we're going through a, a purification process now. And when we get with Christ, it'll be complete. But at the same time, Christ is also saying that the kingdom of heaven is here. So it's something that has to change in our minds of what how we think so we can see the glory of God in this life as well as how it continues in whatever's next for us. At least that's how I'm starting to see this whole thing kind of play out. And what I really see as a, a big characteristic of Christ is he is the peacemaker. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two brothers. And this one kind of, it, it convicts me um, quite a bit. There's a hundred sheep and not one's lost. And when he finds that one and he brings it back, there's a huge party. Same thing with the coin. The woman does the work and she finds that coin and she calls her friends over to celebrate it. And then it gets to the two sons and it's a little more detailed with personalities between each one. I really fall under the identity of the wavered son who goes off, does his own thing, blows it and has to come home. That was my childhood right there, man. Constantly just trying to uh, do my own thing and not, not having it work out correctly. But eventually coming back to my senses and coming back to the church but at the same time, I would see the sinner as that older brother who was there with God the whole dang time and didn't even know who God was. But what does the father do in that story is he makes peace with each kid, no matter how different they are. So the conviction for me is that is like, I can't cast away these pious Christian brothers of mine that have different opinions than me and that think that I'm a wretched heretic, blasphemer, and a sinner because God loves that dude too. Like, I know the character of God because of how he's chased me down and found me when I was that sheep or that coin. Um, And when I came back, I could feel and understand that that love was, it never changed. He was never disappointed in me. He just knew I had to walk my walk. And hey, if he's sovereign and planned my steps, I had to make these decisions and, and, and live that life. Same with the pious older brother on the other side. You know, I tried to do everything that's freaking right. And you didn't even give me a goat to celebrate. Everything I had, dude, was yours. You could have done this anytime yourself. 
I really like that story because instead of calling it the prodigal son, I've heard it like Timothy Keller had a book called The Prodigal God, and it was very eye-opening. And I don't even think it goes into the depths of of, of everything that you can extrapolate from that story. But what it's really convicted me of right now is like, I need to love these people that that tell me I'm going to hell with the same consistency. And now I'm seeing like, every time I think Christ is mad at a Pharisee when I'm reading in the gospels, I'm, I'm seeing compassion now. And like, so when he calls him a fool or a, it's translated to, um, a hypocrite, but that word is actor. He's like, basically like you guys are pretending, you know, kind of thing. And it comes down to our, our kind of this project's thing is there is no human authority whatsoever. So when people dress up as in costumes and, and, and pretend they're religious authority or government authority, which is our main focus in this podcast, that doesn't exist. These people are actors. They're putting on clothes for it. But the reality is we are all children of God. And I'll break it back down to Paul again. That's what creation is longing for. It's when we all realize that we are the sons and daughters of the most high God, then we have nothing to fight about anymore. Yeah. If you say you're not a, yeah, not an inerrantist, if you say the Bible is not inerrant, people take that to mean that the Bible is meaningless. And I think obviously what I see from you guys and what I feel myself as like, no, we love the Bible and take it very seriously. But it's because there's that meaning there. Like you just shared the story of the prodigal son. Like no matter how many times I read that story or hear it from a different person's perspective, I always get new stuff from it. And I think that's why the Bible has survived through empires rising and falling and the, you know, buildings and people and tribes and nations, like it's outlived all of that because the stories are not meant to tell us these are the rules you need to follow. This is how you get in God's good group. And this is how you get in God's bad group. It's that these stories have meaning that tell us who we are as people and give us something to think about and to struggle over and make us really deeply contemplate what the experience of being human means and what our relationship with God really means. And, and it, it gives you that like deep food for thought um, that we can struggle with each other over. And I think the idea, like I'll never call anyone a heretic. I don't care what you believe. Like, <laughs> you know, like we're all struggling through this and, and maybe you're going to understand something one way for a while and understand it a different way for a while, but we have to embrace everyone's searching and, and discovery. And I think, you know, we're, we're told to love God with all of our, mind and all of our strength. And that is loving God with all of your mind is, is to relentlessly keep questioning and, and keep trying to figure it out and not be stuck in, in a spot where you're unwilling to change your mind. It's something, uh, something that Keith Giles said to us when me and Abby first had him on the show. And he said, and it's, it sticks in my head constantly. So the human capacity to get things wrong is endless. And I think it's perfect when you look at the Bible. Because I think people have this image of God guiding people's pens as they're writing this stuff down. Because it's God-breathed. Even if that's the case, there's still a human involved there that could get things wrong. And it, we do have that capacity to get things wrong endlessly. I mean, it's. I think that's, I think that's why this conversation is so interesting to me is because it's it's learning something. It's, it's talking about something we don't normally talk about. And when you talk about it, people freak out. One last question. And I'm going to say this first. Y'all don't like, y'all are tired of debating about it. Y'all are tired of talking about it with people. 
But I have to tell you, I appreciate all three of y'all because I'm like that creeper behind the bush on y'all's threads, just watching, just watching all this stuff. I'm just that creep over there in the corner, just kind of standing there watching all this stuff go on because it's, it's, I appreciated these debates because it's helped me kind of learn, you know, some of this stuff. Anyway, what is y'all's favorite biblical case against universalism that is in these debates or in these conversations and that people use against your understanding of universalism? Uh, conditional immortality. Like like I said before, I don't think eternal conscious torment is even remotely present in the scripture, but I think someone like, like I said, Edward Fudge, um, even someone like Chris Date, who believe in conditional immortality. I think there's actually a really good case for conditional immortality. I just think it's evil. And so, like I said before, I'm not an inerrantist. I believe that Paul sort of vacillated between universalism and annihilationism or conditional immortality. And so for me, I'm, I'm more of a, I don't know if you know who this is, but I'm more of a von Balthasar, von Balthasarian. He was basically like this Catholic theologian. Uh, he wrote this book called Dare We Hope. And, and basically he, he puts out this, he puts out this uh, argument where he, he, he basically says that scripture puts forth contentious positions on eschatology. I mean, which is basically just a way of saying that there's contradictions in the scripture about eschatology. Basically, he says that we should, in, in our impiety, we should just hold to these tensions humbly as we possibly can and not presume that everyone will be saved or presume that everyone won't. But for me, the reason why I think all non-universalist theologies do not work is due to the fact that there's a really good argument against hell. And it's by David Bentley Hart. It's in his book that all shall be saved. And it's his first meditation. And he basically makes an argument from God's from God's creating of the world. And he basically says that God's permission of evil entails sort of a modal collapse of um, God's permissive antecedent will and God's permissive will. And it has moral implications on God's character. So if God allows or permits or even even permits the possibility of some people being eternally lost and eternally lost, then God would be evil. Now, obviously, that was that's condensed and it's not even a really good uh, way to put it. But I, I put it I put it more succinct in like Facebook posts and things like that. And I intend on making a video about it eventually on my YouTube page. But basically, the the, the argument uh, refutes the idea that God would even permit the possibility of some people going to hell. Of being being lost forever, and that goes for annihilationism, and that goes for the idea of eternal conscious torment. So, uh, inevitably, I think that the annihilationist case fails because God would be evil if it did, if it succeeded. And then also, um, I think there's probably like these, there's probably like, like a problem with with the moral coherence of the idea that God would uh, permit some people to go to hell, will, will permit some people to damn themselves. I think it really does a number on the idea of God being perfectly loving and perfectly just. David Bentley Hart, he goes into this on in the first meditation as well. I think it's probably a problem with the idea that you can maintain any kind of uh, coherence in, even in your own self if people that you love damn themselves forever. But then there's also this problem with the fact that human, the human, the human self is not a... Uh, secluded thing. Who you are is contingent upon everybody else that's around you. 
And so I think that if anybody goes to hell, I think that it could potentially collapse the entirety of humanity into hell because everybody, everybody's personality, everybody's, everybody's personhood is so thoroughly connected into this web of humanity that I think it necessitates the idea that everybody has to go to heaven, that everybody must be saved in order for anybody to be saved. And lastly, I think because most of it is predicated on the idea of libertarian freedom, which is basically what most 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 Christians believe. I just think libertarian freedom is stupid. I'm just say I'm just say it, and I just don't think it makes sense. And I think the intellectualist model of free will, like I'm literally just reg- like regurgitating David Bentley Hart's "That All Shall Be Saved," his entire argument. But I think that libertarian freedom, which is how most people tend to argue for the moral permissiveness of hell, I just think it fails. And I think that if you would concede the idea that God would give us give us sufficient um, sufficient evidence to see that he is the thing that is most desirable for us, I think everybody would inevitably choose him. And so that's the reason why I think the idea of annihilationism, even if it, even if it is in scripture, I just think it, fa- I just think it fails. Probably because I've a- argued with uh, Calvinists the most, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. If you really read those stories in context, um, well, he, he quotes it from, I can't remember which Old Testament prophet at the moment. I want to say it was Malachi. Um, but if you look at that in the context of the Old Testament prophet, he's actually talking about Edom, which is the nation that Esau kind of fathered, so to speak. There's more detail in that, that you got to read that whole thing to actually understand uh, where the prophet's coming from. But if you actually look at Esau in the Old Testament story, Jacob is the wicked little brother. And when he goes to, like, he has a wrestling match the night before with God, and, you know, he's renamed Israel, and it means striven with man and God and has prevailed. And then Jacob says at the end of that little wrestling match that I have seen the face of God and I have lived. And then the next day he divides his camp in the two. He's like, um, just in case, like, my brother kills me, at least this these people can go, that people can go. He sends this gift forward to his brother as well. His brother doesn't want the gift. By the time they get face to face, his brother just wants his brother back. He doesn't care about the sins against him that he committed back in the day. And then Jacob follows it up with seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. So what is that? That's forgiveness. That's forgiveness for when you, you even, he even offered his best of his flocks forward to his brother and his brother didn't want him. He just wanted him. That's a beautiful, so to me, like to argue against Calvinists back that Jacob I loved and Esau hated, Esau is the Christ figure in that story. And I don't see how you cannot see that when you actually read it and think about it. But my most biggest retort is the, I think I mentioned the verse already, but maybe it was before we started, is the first Timothy 4.10. For this, for this end, we, we toil and, and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. So if God doesn't save all, then we can't hold on to biblical inerrancy. We can't, we have to just throw that right out the window. And we also say, I don't think it's a doctrine, but the Bible is clear. I don't know how many times I hear radio preachers say that the Bible is clear on this. I've heard, uh, what's his name? Franklin Graham say that the Bible is clear on hell. Uh, no, it isn't, because here's one verse that throws that into question. So this, in a sense, is a Jesus is Lord, liar, or lunatic argument in reverse. You can't hold these positions, and with, with this one biblical verse, you can't hold those other two at all, because it, it is not clear whatsoever. 
actually, I, I, I do think it's clear to uh, universalism, and it goes all the way back to Abraham being a blessing for all nations, which is all peoples. So that's usually my argument to throw back. Also, the other thing that I, this is where we get it wrong, is when we think of salvation as salvation from hell, that that's what we are saved from. Reading scripture is very much like, uh, or reading the Bible is very much allegorical. So you have to understand that there's like, when, when the Bible says God is love, it's like telling us something plain that we need to read into the rest of the scriptures. When we see um, faith is assurance of things that are not yet seen, that's giving us a definition of faith. We're given a definition of eternal life in John 17, 3, which I don't have it at hand, but it says something along the lines of eternal life is knowing God and him who he sent, Jesus Christ. Uh, and him and his son, Jesus Christ. So what eternal life is, is knowing God and knowing his, and his character. So if we don't know God's character, we do not know God. And we see that when Jesus says, these people came unto me and they cast out demons in my names, but I said, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they did not know the character of God. Because what spirit was it done in? You even see Paul, like when he casts out a, a spirit in, in Acts that he gets in a lot of trouble over it because he did it out of annoyance. <laughs> you know? And I think that's a good story to say, like, we have to have our, our hearts clear when we're trying to do the right thing, because we can have the wrong heart with doing, doing the right thing at times. Like he, uh, in almost everybody's favorite biblical passage, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, what good is it if I give all my stuff to the poor, but do not have love? You know, there's, there's a key thing that we're missing. Um, a lot of times. That's the hard thing to swallow, yet it's the most beautiful thing in the world that we are loved regardless. And out of that gives us the ability to continue on good works like like God has called us to. There's a great parable. I know I'm taking a long time, but I just want to spit it out quickly. It's about a knight going down to the Holy Land and trying to um, take Jerusalem back for Christianity. And he runs across this Arabic woman and she's carrying a bucket of water and a torch in, in the other hand. And the knight asks her, well, where are you going with that bucket of water and, and with that torch? And she says, well, with the bucket of water, I'm going to put out the fires of hell. And with the torch, I'm going to go burn down heaven. And he's like, well, why in God's name would you want to do such a thing? And she says, so I can do what's right for the sake of doing right, not for the fear of punishment or for the promise of reward. And so that's where I see we're really mixed up in our evangelical Christianity today with, that I come out of is we're either following God for some blessed reward we think is just belongs to us in the afterlife, or we're afraid that we're going to lose our life. And God doesn't call us to a spirit of fear. And what good does us to have the whole world and forfeit our own soul? We need to be following God for the benefit of our neighbors, as well as what benefits ourselves. And that's just, the, that's where we need to be in harmony is we have to love what I'm learning in my forties is that I actually even have to love myself as much as I love other people. And I need to be loving people like the way I want to be treated as well. And it goes both ways. And you can just, I want to say, have next to a perfect life if we make that our focus. So so two things that I get hit with almost every time. Um, the first one is, what's the point of Jesus dying on the cross if it like doesn't make any difference? Everyone is saved. Scott hit the nail right on the head. It, it's this false understanding of the gospel that the gospel means that Jesus is your ticket into heaven which is not what the gospel was at all. It's that the kingdom is here now and we can live in it if we can recognize it. And I think also that if your relationship with Jesus comes down to just where I go when I die, then you're missing the whole point of it. Or if you think the only reason that I would tell other people about Jesus is to save them from hell, you're missing the whole point of what your relationship with God is supposed to mean. 
and how you're supposed to be living that out on earth. So that's the first one. And then the other one I would say is people would say, well, yes, God is love, but he is also just. And I think that comes from a misunderstanding of what justice is. I think in very human terms, we think of justice as the death penalty, people going to prison, things like that. People have to pay for their crimes when God's justice is restorative and it's ultimately healing and restoring what was lost and bringing us all back into a right relationship with him. So I I don't think that universalism throws out the idea of justice. I think it's a different, more beautiful picture of justice that justice isn't somebody stealing something and getting their hand cut off. Justice is that item being returned and that person coming to a place of repentance, of changing the way that they think to where they're not a thief anymore and where those people live at peace together. And like you said in the beginning, people saying, well, what about Hitler? And it's like, what more beautiful picture of God can you have than ultimately Hitler will be restored to be not only sorry for all the things that he did, but come to love all the people that he harmed and they'll be restored to a place where they can love him and forgive him also. And I think that is the beauty of universalism, but also why it is so, so hard for many people to accept because it it doesn't seem possible based on the, a lot of experiences that we have on this earth. But ultimately, I think that's what God is doing. He's restoring everything and the worst things that you can possibly be imagining aren't going to be sequestered in hell forever. They're going to be healed and restored to God's perfect original creation. So while I've got you, Abby, go. do you have anything you want to plug? I know you work exclusively with us. so I do. I don't have the time to do anything else, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You're super busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to work on this project. I'm about ready to just hand it all over to you anyway if you can find some time. <laughs> If you don't mind, just take it over. And I'll just, I'll just sit over there in the bushes and watch as a creep. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you got anything you want to plug? And then I'm going to let Ari uh, plug whatever he wants to, and then I'll let y'all get out of here. Yeah, I really don't. I mean, I've been trying to get a, a podcast started, but I found paragliding. <laughs> and I've, all my time has just been just taking time off work so I can go play, to be honest with you. Um, I guess, you know, I'll play, plug something that's not, I, I'm just going to plug an idea. Uh, what I'm starting to really learn about myself, like looking through the past and looking how I've lived my life and the activities that I wind up falling falling into, it's more important just to start living your values. Universalism, I, I realize that I've lived a lot of that. I've really been accepting to people a lot in my life without even realizing that I'm, I'm imitating Christ. My anarchism is something I live out. I don't really spend much time arguing about it anymore. I just wind up living it. And I like having the conversations and natural, like I'm meeting new people when I'm out paragliding and whatnot. And whatnot. So we get in, in a, you know, new conversations. And it's really fun just um, sharing the beliefs, but living and realizing that I'm living them out as well. And now that I've put the focus more on just continuing living out the, the, the values, I don't feel like I have to argue them anymore. Yeah, I, I say that quite a bit to people. I said, why don't we just start living a life that ask, gets people to ask us some questions? If they see how you're living and they're seeing how you're going about your life and it gets them curious. And when they ask questions, that opens all kinds of doors for us. You know, we don't have to start shoving this down people's throats. Just just, just live your life like you just speak. I, I love that, Scott. All right, go ahead and plug whatever you want to plug. Uh, well, obviously, I'm a rapper. I have all my music on m- most uh, music streaming platforms like 
Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Tidal, uh, Spotify as well. If you want to, you know, there's no no pressure. You can go on there and you can find my music. I'm under Failed Kingdoms. It's spelled exactly how it's how it sounds. You can also go on SoundCloud. I have two pages now because I got kicked off from my other page for some reason. Um, so it's Fell Kingdoms and it's also Fell Kingdoms number two. I have newer music on the second page. Um, you can also look up my YouTube page. I post a lot of theological videos. Well, I'm going to at least a lot of social commentary videos and I'm a very big fan of cinema and comics. So I'll probably start posting stuff about that and how it maybe sometimes ties into Christianity and things like that. And I also have a series on Amazon, uh, Amazon Vela. I don't know if you guys know about that, but it's basically like Kindle, but it's for short stories. It's going to be a series and it's called The One Beyond. And it's literally under Ari Spivey, A-R-E-E-S-P-I-V-E-Y. If you want to stay up with the story, you can keep up on there. Uh, the first five episodes are free. And then after that, you got to pay for them. But hit me up on there, too, if you want. Yeah, I'm going to actually pressure everybody to go listen to Ari Spivey's music. He's not going to pressure you, but I'm going to tell everybody to go do this. I mean, because it's it's phenomenal. It's one of the I, – I, I listen to it all the time. And now I'm a little upset with you, man. I didn't know – you. I felt like you've been holding out on me. I didn't know you had a second SoundCloud that had more music on it. What I mean – well, I know what I'm doing the rest of the evening. I'm going to check out the rest of your music then. I'm a little upset with you. And I'm also still waiting on that signed copy of your CD too. So, Oh, wow. You're right. <laughs> I'll, send, I'll send it. I'll text you. <laughs> All right, buddy. All right, guys. I'm going to let y'all go. I really appreciate this conversation, your time. We, we spent a little over an hour and a half, and you guys are incredible. And I love each and every one of y'all so much. And I really appreciate taking the time to speak with me. I will talk to y'all soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. <laughs>